Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 47. Last week, I wrapped up with the 26th Dynasty Pharaoh, Samtik II, who died in 589 BC. And, in the period covered in the last episode, along with this one, the Levant was occupied by outside powers, the Assyrians along with the Babylonians with continued influence from other regional powers, powers that included the Egyptians. This week, I'm picking up with Samtik's son and successor, Apris. And with that, let's get started. Apris reigned for 19 years during the early 6th century BC. Like his grandfather, he warranted a mention in the Old Testament, which I'll get to in a bit. Early in his reign, and most likely in order to solidify his control of the country, his sister was adopted as the god's wife of a moon at Thebes. This is becoming a common occurrence. And despite this, he couldn't stave off internal problems. Sometime around 586 BC, so three years into his reign, a large contingent of his army, based near Aswan, mutinied. He quickly contained the mutineers, but their actions were mere foreshadowing of what was to come. Soon afterwards, while he was attempting to defend Libya from Dorian Greek invaders, the Egyptian army was soundly defeated by the Greeks. But they weren't all killed or taken prisoner. Many returned back to Egypt, and when they did, a civil war broke out in the army between its native Egyptian members and the foreign mercenaries who for decades had been supplementing the regulars. With the ongoing fighting, the native Egyptians withdrew their support from the pharaoh and gave it to a general, Amasis II. They really liked him, as under Apris's father, the general had led the army during the 592 BC invasion of Nubia and subsequent victory. In 570 BC, Amasis seized the opportunity and declared himself pharaoh. More on this in a little bit. At the time, Apris sensed the gig was up and fled to an unspecified foreign country, but given what was about to occur, it was probably to the northeast, Babylon. Three years later, he would return, this time with the Babylonian army at his side, no doubt hoping to reclaim the throne. But he was killed in the ensuing battle, so much for that plan. At least that's the most accepted version of events. Herodotus had a slightly different spin on how the whole thing unfolded. In his version, Apri survived the battle, ending up being captured. But even though he was a prisoner, Amasis treated him well. At least until the Egyptian people demanded justice. Amasis gave in and turned the former pharaoh over to the mob. They quickly strangled him to death. And, no matter how he met his ultimate fate, with his death, Amasis secured his position on the throne. Even though I've already given away the ending, let me circle back to his role in the Old Testament. In 588 BC, Apri sent troops to Jerusalem to protect it from Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army. In Jeremiah chapter 37, we read, Meanwhile, the army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard the news, they withdrew from Jerusalem." Quote. But it only delayed the inevitable. 
the Egyptian army quickly beat a path to Egypt, and most likely losing their resolve when the might of the Babylonians became clear. Jerusalem, after a seemingly never-ending 18-month siege, fell to the Babylonians, probably in either 587 or 586 BC. As a note, the Chaldeans were a Semitic-speaking nation that existed between the late 10th and mid-6th centuries BC. After this, they were absorbed and assimilated into Babylonia. Their society was located in the marshy land of the far southeastern corner of Mesopotamia, and briefly came to rule Babylon. So, in the passage from Jeremiah, most likely the writer used the two terms, Chaldeans and Babylonians, interchangeably. And a few notes. In the Old Testament, Apris is called Hafra, as seen in Jeremiah chapter 44. Here we read, Thus says the Lord, I am going to give Pharaoh Hafra, king of Egypt, into the hands of his enemies, those who seek his life, just as I gave King Zedekiah of Judah into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. End quote. And who knew that those enemies would be his own people? Which gets me to Amasis. Amasis, as smart usurpers do, knew he would face a challenge in securing his role. So, he set about on a mission. First, he allegedly treated Apris' remains respectfully, having his body transported to the capital of Sais, where he was interred with full military honors. More importantly, Amasis would marry Apris' daughter, and apparently these moves worked, as Amasis, now known as Amasis II, would rule for 44 years, the longest reigning ruler in quite some time. You'd have to go back to Samtik I, who died 40 years prior, for a longer reigning contemporary. And, despite not being related to his predecessor, at least by blood, and coming to power in a sort of coup, Amasis is considered part of the 26th dynasty. Most of what we know about him comes from Herodotus, with a bit more information from a few surviving monuments. So, take it all with a grain of salt. It was thought that he was not a royal, but a commoner. And the story of how he achieved power is a little more specific than what I covered in the history of his predecessor. When the troops returned from fighting, then losing to the Dorian Greeks in Libya, they were concerned that Opries would attempt to grab more power by placing the Greek mercenaries, who made up a large portion of the army, over the native soldiers. It's thought that the then-General Amasis was still loyal to the pharaoh, and went out to negotiate with the mutinying troops. These troops were still loyal to him, but had had enough of the king, so they took it upon themselves to declare Amasis king, and he took them up on the offer. When he did, most of the native troops switched their allegiances to him, leaving the favor with only a smaller, foreign mercenary force. And that was it. New king installed, old one fleeing to Babylon. In his fourth year, so 567 BC, Amasis defeated the Babylonians, then ruled by Nebuchadnezzar II, when they attempted to invade, again. From that point forward, the Babylonians would give up their dream of occupying Egypt. Throughout his rule, Amasis allied himself with the Greeks, and this alliance, along with a period of peace and favorable weather, benefited the kingdom economically, 
to the point that the country experienced prosperity unseen for decades, perhaps centuries. Amasis would use the opportunity to deck out the temples, erect monuments, and build elaborate shrines. He allowed the Greeks to build a commercial colony in the Delta, a place known as Nalcatris, and he lent his support to them in other ways. In 548 BC, when the Greek temple at Delphi burned, in the Greek homeland, Amasis donated 1,000 talents towards its reconstruction. I could not find a source that clarified if this was silver or gold, but either way, assuming it's true, that's an enormous donation. A talent was somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 pounds or 33 kilograms, so his donation was more than a truckload of precious metal. But there's another interpretation. The possibly mythical Greek poet and author Homer, who is believed to have lived between the 12th and 8th centuries BC, so well before Amasis, valued a talent of gold as being equivalent to the value of a cow or ox which would make it much less valuable than 75 pounds of silver, at least by our modern standards. But even if this was what the pharaoh donated, a gift equal to the value of 1,000 head of livestock is not a gift to be looked in the mouth. Amasis would marry a Greek princess, the daughter of their king Battis III of Cyrene. Cyrene was a different Greek colony in the Nile Delta. Egyptian sources many somewhat contemporary, describe Amasis as being a non-conventional pharaoh, behaving in ways unbecoming to a king, but gifted with practical wisdom and cunning, a trickster on the throne, or a kind of comic Egyptian Solomon. Makes you wish they had provided more detail. I guess our individual imaginations will have to fill in the gaps. Herodotus also told of how Amasis confronted Persia, this was the time when the power of Babylon was waning against the rise of the Persians. Amasis was asked by either Cambyses II or Cyrus the Great, both of the Achaemenid Empire, for an Egyptian ophthalmologist. It's a safe assumption that one of them was having eye problems, irritating enough to reach out to a foreign leader. As for which Persian leader it was specifically, well, the tale doesn't tell and merely identifies the leader as the king of Persia. At the time, it was close enough to the transition of power that it could have been either, but for the sake of the story, assume it was the successor, Cambyses. Amasis did what any reasonable dictator does, and enslaved an Egyptian doctor. The unfortunate doctor was then taken from his family and homeland and forced to move to Persia, but he would have his revenge. The doctor was necessarily close to Cambyses, close enough to have not only the eyes of the king, but also the ear. He convinced Cambyses to request Amasis' daughter for marriage to the Persian king, under the guise of tying the two societies together. The Persian king thought the idea splendid. Amasis thought the request was merely an attempt to turn his daughter into the king's concubine, and refused to send her. But Amasis also knew his kingdom, Egypt, could not win out militarily against the stronger Persians. Instead, he attempted to trick Cambyses. Amasis then forced the daughter of his predecessor to go to Persia to become Cambyses' wife. 
The woman, according to Herodotus, was quite a lovely sight. But the pharaoh's plan wasn't exceptionally well thought out. When she arrived in Persia, the substitute woman spilled the beans to the Persian king. Cambyses was enraged and vowed revenge, but that too was not to come to pass, as Amasis died before Cambyses could get to him. He would manage to get his revenge. More on that in a bit. Under Amasis' rule, he allied Egypt with Persia's neighbors, the Lydians and the Babylonians. The Persian king Cyrus, being great and all, wasn't going to let this get in his way. He did an end around and convinced the leaders of these kingdoms that they could count on him for support. So they inked treaties with the Persians, and just like that, the Egyptians lost allies. And just as importantly, the Lydians and the Babylonians lost the support of the Egyptians. Then, knowing the Egyptians would not come to their defense, the Persians attacked their new allies, overtaking their territory and ousting their leaders. And just like that, the Persians were Egypt's neighbors. Of course, in the middle of all this were the Hebrew kingdoms. Amasis then set about strengthening his relationship with the Greeks, in a dire effort to stem the ever-closer Persians. Amasis would die in 526 BC, and with the country arguably better off than it was when he seized power over four decades before. He was buried at the royal necropolis at Sais, but his tomb has never been uncovered. Herodotus had some knowledge of it, perhaps seen during his Egyptian travels. The Greek historian would describe it as being a great cloistered building of stone, decorated with pillars carved to resemble palm trees and other costly ornaments. Within the cloister was a chamber with double doors, and behind the doors stands the sepulcher. More on his tomb in a minute. Amasis was succeeded by his son, Samtik III. A few days after his coronation, it reigned at the royal city of Thebes, a rare event in that desert city. Many saw this as a prophecy, and not in a good way. And if this were a movie, the rain would be coupled with ominous music, and you would know something was about to occur. And remembering back a few minutes, shortly before he died, Amasis royally roiled the Persian king Cambyses, who was on his way to deal with the situation. The Persian army crossed the Sinai Desert with the aid of Arabian chieftains who supplied the amassed troops with much-needed water in the desert. Cambyses' army would invade the northeastern extreme of Egypt a mere six months into Samtik III's reign. And this should have shocked no one at the time, insult or not, as the Egyptians controlled the largest territory in the region that was not under the rule of the Persians. The pharaoh knew the Persians were coming and hoped his alliance with the Greeks would prove beneficial, but hope faded when it became clear that his presumed allies, along with the large fleets they controlled, would choose to support the Persians. And even the pharaoh's mercenary commander of the Greek troops, Phanes of Halicarnassus, switched sides. The clock was winding down. The Egyptian pharaoh would be defeated at the Mediterranean coastal city of Pelusium in 525 BC, and he would flee along with the few of his army who survived to Memphis. 
The Persians then lay siege to the city, and it wouldn't be long before it collapsed and Samtik was captured. According to Herodotus, shortly after Memphis was taken, Cambyses ordered the public execution of 2,000 prominent citizens, allegedly including a son of the fallen king. Apparently, this was done in retaliation for the murder of the Persian ambassador and the crew of his boat. But the Persian king wasn't done with his vendetta. Samtik's daughter, along with the daughters of all Egyptian noblemen, were enslaved. Samtik was allowed to live, but perhaps as a sort of punishment served up as having to witness the carnage in his former kingdom. Then the story takes an unexpected turn. An old man who had once been the king's friend was forced by the desperate conditions to become a beggar. As the punishments were doled out, all of these people were brought before Samtik to test his reaction, and he only became upset after seeing the state of the beggar. It was this compassion for the beggar that led to Samtik's life being spared. The ousted pharaoh was then allowed to live alongside the servants and staff of the Persian king, but he couldn't leave well enough alone. After some time had passed, Samtik attempted to lead a rebellion among the Egyptians. When the Persian king learned of this, Samtik is said, at least by Herodotus, to have drunk bull's blood and immediately died. Like I said, things got weird. A different source has the imprisoned Samtik being carted off to the Persian city of Susa, located in present-day southwestern Iran, near the Iraqi border. It was here in Susa that he was executed. As for which is true, take your pick. But do know that he was the last independent ruler of Egypt for quite some time, and the last ruler of the 26th dynasty. I teased a minute ago about the condition of Amasis' tomb. When the Persian king Cambyses conquered Egypt and overtook the territory surrounding the tomb of the trickster pharaoh Amasis, according to Herodotus, the Persian king ordered that Amasis' body be removed from his tomb. He then, in the Greek's words, proceeded to have it treated with every possible indignity, such as beating it with whips, sticking it with sticks, and plucking his hair. But the Egyptian mummification process was too good for his liking, as the corpse would not fall apart, despite repeated blows. So, not being one to give up easily on revenge, Cambyses had it burned. At this point, Egypt fell under the control of the Persians, and as such, the history of the two countries became exceedingly intertwined. My intent is to cover the history of the Persians when I get to that section of the Old Testament. So at this point, I'll attempt to limit the history to what was happening within the confines of what used to be the Egyptian kingdom. In essence, I pressed the accelerator a few episodes ago, and now it's getting pressed further. With the defeat, then death of Amasis, the Persians came to rule Egypt under the reign of Cambyses, and, possibly an attempt to show authority, Cambyses went as far as to adopt the titles and the dress of the pharaohs. Or maybe it just suited him. While in Egypt, Cambyses attempted a reconquest of Cush, but his army was not able to cross the deserts. 
fully demonstrating the dire need he had for the Arabian chieftains who supported his invasion of Egypt. Maybe Amasis should have not ignored them, but built more alliances on the large peninsula. In Nubia, Cambyses suffered heavy losses and was forced to return without a victory. Nubian inscriptions claim that they not only defeated the Persian-slash-Egyptians, but also captured all of their ships. Later, apparently Cambyses desired to conquer Carthage, but those plans were frustrated by the Greek mercenaries' refusal to attack their own people. Sometime around 522 BC, and after ruling Egypt for only about three years, Cambyses died under disputed circumstances. These range from a gangrenous wound, to stabbing himself with a piece of wood, to an accident while mounting his horse. All really odd ways to go. A few modern researchers believe he was assassinated. Whatever the cause, he died in Egypt, having never returned to his native Persia. He was succeeded by Bardia, who reigned for a mere few months. The exact length is unknown, but certainly less than a year. His major claim to fame is that he was the son of Cyrus the Great and the younger brother of Cambyses II. As for his interactions with Egypt, he never went there, and given his short reign, there's nothing to speak of. I will cover him in more depth, which really isn't too much more, but I'll get to it when I get to the history of the Persians. But despite this short reign, he may have been mentioned in the Old Testament. In Ezra chapter 4, a Persian king known as Artaxerxes is mentioned as opposing the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. It's thought by some that Bardia and Artaxerxes were one and the same. Bardia was succeeded by the Persian king Darius I, who would rule for 36 years. As a time check, this was between 522 and 486 BC. His rule is so well known and regarded by his contemporaries as being so phenomenal that he also became known as Darius the Great. During his reign, the Persian Empire would control most of Western Asia, along with parts of Europe and North Africa. Prior to becoming king, it's thought that Darius had served as Cambyses' personal spear carrier during his Egyptian campaign. But unlike the then ruling Persian king, when the war was over, Darius returned home. How he rose from a somewhat prominent military position to the leader of Persia, we'll have to wait for a future episode. What's important to know now is that as part of the Persian Empire, Egypt was governed by what is known as a satrapy. Think of this as a province with a fixed annual tribute due to the foreign king. Egypt was ruled by an official known as a satrap, who was essentially a viceroy. But don't get too pedantic. I know it's not exactly the same, but the difference is irrelevant to this podcast. In Egypt's case, the satrap was Arians, and no, he wasn't that. Anyway, a few years into Persian control, a native Egyptian known as Patubastes III led a rebellion and declared himself Pharaoh. Patubastes was a local prince, possibly a descendant of the royal sight line. He may have recently made his home near the Dakla Oasis, which would have been removed from the area controlled by the Persians. But as a member of the old royal line, 
he would have originally been from the Delta region. Patubastes most likely took advantage of the short reign of Bardia, and during the confusion in the Persian capital, the self-crowned pharaoh fomented a rebellion. Adding to the rebellious desires were heavy taxes imposed by the Persian satrap, and the timing was likely key, as there were other parallel rebellions in other regions of the Persian Empire. It's possible that he did lead his troops to a victory over what is known as the Lost Army of Cambyses. But there is so much myth and legend around those troops, it's difficult to discern fact from fiction. Despite this, or maybe because of this, the Egyptian rebellion was quickly and directly addressed by Darius, who personally made the return trip to Egypt. And his tactic to suppress the upstart pharaoh was both cunning and relatively nonviolent. Polyanus, a 2nd century AD Greek writer, recorded that Darius entered Memphis shortly after the death of the sacred Apis bull. While the locals were mourning the bovine's death, Darius offered 100 talents of gold to whoever could provide a new living idol. The locals were so astounded by his dedication that they switched allegiances from the rebels to the foreign king, at least in Memphis. It would take some fighting to fully defeat Petubius, but the end was near. Once Persian order was restored, so was Arians as a satrap. Then, Arians attempted to defeat Libya, only to be defeated himself. Soon thereafter, around 496 BC, Arians fell out of favor with Darius, was deposed, and replaced by Firandetas. The reason for a change in control is unclear, although there are two prominent theories. First, it's claimed that Arians began to mint his own coinage, and this didn't sit well with Darius. There's also the theory that he declared independence, obviously not a welcomed move. Whichever is true, Arians was executed. Elsewhere, and later, the Persians would be defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon, a campaign not personally attended by Darius. With the defeat, though, he would regroup, a reorganization that would take three years. But before he could personally lead the campaign back to Greece, another rebellion ensued in Egypt. It's thought that the stress of preparing for the Greeks, coupled with the sudden, somewhat unexpected Egyptian revolt, led to his worsening health and eventual death. One more thing, in Egypt, he isn't just known for taxation, rebellions, and victories. He disputedly had a canal built from the Nile to the Red Sea, the true precursor to the Suez Canal. It was then possible to travel by boat from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea via the Nile, a few lakes, and the canal. Portions of this project had been begun by Pharaoh Necho II about 100 years prior, but ancient writers are in disagreement if the canal was actually completed. Some sources claiming it was finished and used only to be silted up centuries later. Either way, when Napoleon would return in the late 18th century, there was no canal to be found. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the impact on Egypt of Darius's successor, Xerxes I. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. 
As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.